friends, friends, friends. Don't, 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 at least play the Barney the Dinosaur theme for us if you're going to keep us in here. I'll sing it. Eminem? Okay, no, 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 my dude. You love me. We're a happy family. Uh, gentlemen. Oh. So you've made yourselves comfortable? I mean, I've already taken a shit. No, hand, we haven't. So yeah, I was comfortable for a moment. Oh, well, I was hoping you could just answer a few questions, and then maybe you could you could be on your way. Are you a Fed? Are you are, are you going to tell me? Man, you guys are really losing your budget if you're having to throw us in storage units instead of Gitmo. Fuck. Is this when you tell me that I have to tell you if I'm a cop? I mean, I look at you, look at you, man. Like you don't need to say you're a cop. We know you're a cop. Look at your shoes. I knew we shouldn't have got the haircuts. It's the shoes. It's always the shoes. Or the or the watches. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so yeah, w why have you kidnapped us? How did you kidnap us, first of all? That's that's a very that, pertinent question, that's, but we, we why got, did you kidnap we, us? We took lots of drugs, and we got drunk, Frank. Like, it was really easy to kidnap us. Yeah, you actually, I mean, you were much easier than many of the Al-Qaeda and ISIS subjects we've ever, ever had to round up. It was pretty simple. Just, again, just have a few questions here on this on this clipboard. Well, that's because they don't get drunk. You, you would be surprised. Yeah, sometimes, sometimes. None, uh, okay, none okay, of okay. The so, if you're kidnapping us... guys that I've drunk with can drink worth anything. That's all I'm gonna say. Well, yeah, but to be fair, neither can us. All right. So you admit you ha you have contacts with ISIS. It's a long story. We aren't on the best of terms anymore. Let, let, let's put it that way. Let's put it that way. Look, I just—I think Facebook friends isn't really a close collection, is it? We're just drinking buddies. Oh fuck! Are you working for Facebook? I think it's—you've been in here a long time. It's called Meta now. We knew this was gonna happen eventually. Okay, so you guys have intelligence app right now. Okay, that's good to know. Speaking of Meta, uh. We uh just had a, we just had a couple questions here about these uh, armies you, you purport to to have. Huh? What 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 what, what sort of armies? There's nothing wrong with the towel, all right. Several reports here from our friends that you reported you report to broadcast a radio show talking about your innumerable many unknown armies. Oh, and, uh, oh, I see. Oh. I'm just curious what you mean by that. Okay, okay. This guy's probably a sleeper. I don't think I don't think he knows what the fuck he's talking about, Tom. Yeah, maybe not. Are you, are you? Are you? What do you feel about Jesus Christ? Are you a priest? As an expletive or as a savior? Mm. Either. Yeah, either. Yeah. Um, What's your thoughts on the Pope? Uh, Either of uh, them. I think, I think he's not doing not doing enough. I, I, I won't be that surprised if Facebook kind of has their own sort of you know circle of that sort going nowadays. It looks like they forgot your cheese curds again, but um, they got the, the the burgers are there are all there. Um, ice cream machine was fucked. Wait, who, 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 did you did you untie them? They were like that when I came in. I thought you said. It I mean, I appreciate if nothing else. We were pretty uncomfortable. It wasn't so much that they, we were untied as that the knots weren't that great. I studied under Houdini. All right. Well, um, both of them. As as long as you're talking to them, why don't we start with their names and they can tell us a little bit about their show because our SIG and intercepts, um, you know, for the higher ups might not have a. Oh, let's fuck. get into their own. Words. I know who these guys are, Frank. 
Oh, God. What, uh, who are these guys? These guys are definitely the Hoffman Institute. I don't know who that is. They're a supernatural investigative agency. Listen, at, listen. At really let's not, let's not have to get you the You need to be more specific, Thompson. There's like 12 of those. 33.3 FM. What is it? All right. Um, Tom, you want to start with the spiel? Or should I? 33.3 FM is a way of life. 33.3 FM will cure your hemorrhoids. 33.3 FM knows... When you go to sleep, thirty-three point three FM is a, is a is a radio show, which yeah will help you go to sleep, like any good radio show. But uh, it's a radio show that we broadcast about um a very particular war game coming out in war game, not in like the you know tabletop sense, the broad uh, uh sort of you know the sort of shit that uh that Rand helps with. Uh, got started oh, like a simulation. Yeah, exactly, exactly. You, you I you guys know exactly what I mean. Uh, simulation, often role-playing involved, um, that was published in the late 90s in regards to a very particular subculture that might be called the Occult Underground. It tends to be what's thrown around there. Um, this game has a very particular fan base and has been, as of a few years ago, came out with its third edition, courtesy of who I'm sure friend of your, friends of yours, uh, Greg Stolze, missing his original co-creator, John Tynes. And it is a game describing a very particular spin on urban fantasy that, you know, tends to have some sort of neo-noir elements thrown in there as well. And it's the only game that John Tynes ever made. Yes, the only game John Tynes ever Puppet made. Land. Don't forget Puppetland. Are you guys working for Puppetland? Okay, and um, uh, for those of you listening to this tape, we will um, insert the address at which we intercepted the original communication that led to this uh, wonderful interaction we're having right now. Now, um, do, do you guys want to abandon the pretense? Or do you have other like mileage that we can get out of this bit? <laughs> uh, I think we've, I think we've, we've beaten this. Yeah, yeah I think we're we've fine. wrung as much out okay. of this as we're going to get. Um, yeah, so you fellas want to know about these unknown armies, so we hear. Yeah, I, I, so, um, out of character, I'm super into unknown armies right now, and, um, Tom and Kevin are less so. So here's a stumbling block I always have with unknown armies. Um, bearing in mind, like, I haven't, like, bought the book or read it myself or done much more than, like, a cursory talking to other people about of research. So... Like when I look when I think about a game I haven't played, like when I think about like Twilight Two Thousand, in my head I can I can kind of picture what a game of that is like, you know, partisans and rebels in in the in, you know, NATO countries, you know, fighting the bad guys. I, yeah, I get, get this kind of idea. NATO con- no, it's not in a NATO country, it's in Poland. Well, you know, that area. Um, I think there's splat books that take place like a lot of yeah, places. Yeah. You're probably so, right. But anyway, yeah. like, I I never played the game. I kickstarted, but anyway, I can picture it. Unknown Armies is one of those games that I've heard a lot of people talk about, and I still can't. Like, I don't know what a game looks like. So, like, yeah. help, help me understand what no. this is. What this is, is and I'm really going to be a typical game, but like, what is it? Unknown Armies is not a proselytizing religion. Unknown Armies is a mystery cult, and you have to wake, wake your way through the initiation to learn what Unknown Armies is. And if you have the wherewithal, and if you have the spirit, you will start to understand. To read like six source books, no, most of which came out in the late nineties. That's optional. So let, let let's let's save the kvetching about how inaccessible it is because I can talk a lot about I, that. I'm proud of its inaccessibility. It's a fair point. No, I think it's a fair point. Kevin hasn't even reached the stage where he will be able to appreciate how irritating <laughs> it is. 
That is true. That is it, true. It's a fair point. I think it's a hump we should get over. Um, so, yeah, to kind of get back to what I was going on about earlier, Unknown Armies is a game that was originally written by Greg Stolze and John Tynes, uh, two writers who, John Tynes especially, worked a lot on Delta Green. And it's sort of a reaction to kind of the old world of darkness that was popular at the time, as well as just a very particular spin on urban fantasy that tends to mix it with crime elements. Unknown Armies is kind of hard to get, and I've seen this and heard this complaint a lot. And honestly, the best way I can describe it is that Unknown Armies is less a particular setting or game conceit the way that Delta Green is. And it's more of a vibe. The basic issue is that all of the media properties that Unknown Armies is like are not popular. So it's shit like it is it is very heavily influenced by Tim Powers, particularly yeah. the novel Last Call, which I doubt Kevin has read. Correct, correct. Not because I think that Kevin is a buffoon, but because it's like it's from like the eighties and it's not it wasn't, like, terribly popular. I think it got a Hugo. Like, it, it got some awards and shit, but yeah. Yeah, but, like, that and $2 will get you a cup of coffee. Yeah. Uh, the It's not a household name, and all of the other media properties, like, it's like Constantine, but the comics, not the movie, which, you know, who the fuck knows what that is. It's like China Memeville, who who the hell knows what that is, except for maybe, like, Pretty Doe Street Station, which is a very different flavor yeah. of fantasy to what Unknown Armies has to offer. Uh, just the basic issue is that um, the genre of stuff that Kevin likes is not like Unknown Armies. And the way that I've always tried to describe it is, what if you were playing Delta Green, but there was a richer menu of possible interactions with the wizards than just shoot them all? Well, yeah, there's... Unknown Armies was created as sort of a reaction to Delta Green by the devs, in fact, because what it was was it was Tynes kind of wanting to run that sort of occult-focused role-playing game without one having to shoehorn everything into being related to the Cthulhu mythos. Yeah. And two, he wanted something that, yeah, like allowed for a greater breadth of interaction with the magical elements than just this thing will corrode your brain and destroy you from the inside out and all of your relationships and all that good stuff. So, so let me let me ask you this. Then. So, like when when I hear some of the pitches, I in my head I'm I'm picturing like um like Dresden Files adjacent that kind of universe or like uh, Monster Hunter International. Like, You're you pretty know, far off, actually. Yeah, yeah. So, like that's what I get out of it. It's like why if that's far off, like steer steer me back. Yeah. Torm and I both have kind of our own pithy pitches for it. Uh, Torm, could you regale them with yours, and I'll regale them with mine? You regale them with yours first. Let me, let me, I'll be thinking about mine. All right. So the best thing I've found to kind of explain what Unknown Ares is going for is, have any of you guys seen Tiger King? Yes. Yes. No. Sequel coming out soon. It's like that, but you're wizards. <laughs> All right, Torm, now you do yours. Um, people, I've noticed that people sometimes... The thing about Unknown Armies is you kind of have to end up referencing media properties, and as Frank says, they are often more obscure. Yeah. And what makes this a little bit more difficult is because the tone of the game has shifted somewhat since the, the late 90s and to today, for good and ill, in my opinion. When I'm trying to explain it to people in using more commonly understood um, pop cultural references, 
even then it's difficult because I'm just like, it's a bit like a mix between David Lynch and Quentin Tarantino, which doesn't say much, but it makes sense in my head. Kevin, do you like Fiasco? I, mean, I did like Fiasco a lot, yeah. It goes for similar stuff, yeah. Imagine that, but it's like a full game instead of a, um, like a, a card game. The thing about it, Unknown Armies really is like Unknown Armies. It is what it is, and it's not really like any of the things that we're going to reference. It is what it is. And uh, like Greg Stolze and John Tynes, um, over 20 years, over 20 years in books one, two, and three, all editions, they tried really hard to like describe it in various ways that would make it easy to grok. It's not easy to grok. That's a good thing. I'm, try- I'm, I'm tired of pretending it isn't. I disagree. I don't think they did a good job. Well, they tried, at least. And they tried a long time. And a lot of people have tried. If you could do it better, Bell and I, I give you my hat. Basically, uh, Kevin, imagine if um, if in Fiasco uh, you had magic powers and instead of being an ultralight storytelling game, it was a decently mechanically dense D100 system with some cool innovations around things like sand tests and like one of the best character building mini games that I've ever seen when it works properly, which is a big win. Tynes and Stolze have gone on record saying that there are sort of three artists who are their key influences coming up with unknown armies. Tim Powers is one of them. Tim Powers being, for those that only know his stuff, he's a guy that does kind of urban fantasy stuff. It's more like he takes a genre like noir or espionage and then does a ton of research into like historical occult shit related to it and puts the two together um his whole over is kind of like doing the dan brown thing but one less like a hack and two mixing it with more traditional kind of pulpy genres the second creative that they're very in-depth to for this game is david lynch David Lynch, I think a lot of us are familiar with him. Um, I'd say the closest thing tone-wise to Unknown Armies from his over is, like, a lot of the sleazier elements of Twin Peaks. You know, like the stuff at the Roadhouse, that sort of stuff. Where it's, like, people that are involved with very base human pleasures and goals, but also, in certain ways, using the supernatural and occult to achieve those goals. And the third creative that they take a lot from, who is bigger in the 90s than he is now, is a guy named James Elroy. Do any of you guys know his stuff? Is that the guy who wrote L.A. Confidential, the original novel? Bingo. Yep. Um, And James Elroy does the... He's kind of a... He's like the neo-noir writer. Um, He does investigative sort of detective stories showing a very, like... You know, going deep into the sort of sleazy underbelly of urban L.A. and those sorts of settings. And if you mix all those three together in a pot and you kind of get Unknown Armies, more some other things that are kind of adjacent to it that are somewhat widely known. Uh, American Gods by Neil Gaiman. That's probably the one people are most likely to have consumed just because it got a TV adaptation in like the last five years, I think. Also... To an extent, I would say Dirk Gently's Holistic Detective Agency is a good one. Yeah, I would agree. A, it's a Netflix show. It's an adaptation of a British series. Um, oh, nice. It's, it was cancelled because of um, 
Max Landis being a sex pest, which is annoying because I did like the show a lot. The original books were written by Douglas Adams, so if you're a Hitchhiker's Guide fan, like most nerds are, you'd probably like Dirk Gently too. It's kind of his take on parroting mystery tropes, but then there's also just, hey, Thor shows up, because why I, the fuck I not? I think it's also really important to talk about it in a meta sense, since you guys work for meta, haha, um, in terms of what John Tynes was motivated by. And I really do feel that it was like an internal reaction, which is what makes John Tynes an interesting character in terms of being a game designer, is it reacted to a reaction to his own work, because he put a lot of work into updating like the call of Cthulhu setting into a like a, combining it with conspiracy law and making it something new something that um basically chaosium wasn't really doing seriously if you're looking at like what they were doing with Cthulhu now and stuff they could have half-assed uh, they did a half-assed job and I, I can easily imagine John Tynes running around like conventions in the early 90s trying to sell his Delta Green setting and having a hard time but he ended up reacting to his own thing because you can look at the way magic and like the supernatural works in unknown armies is in many ways like a polar opposite to the cosmic horror of uh, delta green or call of cthulhu in general because unknown armies is a humanocentric universe everything every, every the the tagline of the game is you did it it's all about human personal responsibility in one way or the other it's about obsession and it's about the choices we make so it's the polar opposite of a universe like delta green where we are less than motes of dust we will be crushed under the the the, the, the slimy boot heels of much more powerful and un, incomprehensible beings because in the unknown armies universe like the like the whole cosmology is just based on our bullshit and the results and the consequences of our bullshit going on and on which means that in unknown armies what the things that you can a group can achieve can go all the way from like saving a town from some minor problem all the way to like changing the very fabric of the universe if you have a large enough objective and you've got the the wherewithal to do it which gives because for years i've sort of facilitated between delta green and unknown armies for like periods of time for like a six months to a year i'll be really into one or the other because they, i do enjoy both like worldviews and like both settings in different ways and they scratch like slightly different yeah. itches in yeah. my brain but i've been getting more into like my unknown army's kick at the moment has lasted longer partially because i'm working on projects partially because i'm doing 33.3 fm partially because arc dream has been annoying me with their creative decisions but i feel that what unknown armies brings to the table can be understood in as a reaction to in contrast with the kind of worldview the kind of zeitgeist that call of cthulhu and particularly delta green present and also it is definitely a reaction to old word of darkness too vampire the masquerade mage the ascension all that good stuff it's interesting that it's a reaction because i feel that the old game was larded down by many of the same issues as those settings regarding overly detailed machinations of super powered npcs that the players couldn't touch it was the late 90s that's one of the best things the new edition did was remove the the tier structure between like street level characters and cosmic level characters and just say hey we got rid of we got rid of fucking Comte Saint Germain which was a great decision we got we got rid of the freak which was a bullshit decision but i understand why they did it um and like similar to how delta green kind of cleaned the slate of all the uber powerful conspiracies that were running around and 
in the setting for the new edition. It, it, it's, it, it makes a whole lot of sense that they would both do this because they were both designed by the same people and they both had to transfer from one cultural era to, the, to another over a period of almost 20 years. Another way to kind of think of Unknown Armies is, you know that sort of cliche of long-running Call of Cthulhu campaigns where, all right, we've done all the introductory scenarios, each of us now, each of the party members now has their own spooky mansion bequeathed to them by a distant family figure that has since been cleared out of supernatural bullshit. And over the course of this, we've accrued all these tomes. And now that the game is opening up, we're going to use our portals through the quarters of time and our spells that wither people's limbs to run a bootlegging operation. And Unknown Armies is kind of like, hey, what if we made a game like that, but on purpose? We've, got, we've done a great deep dive on the cultural milieu that the game was created in and all of this lore about the decisions that the authors were reacting to. Um, and could you tell us a little bit about um, why we should care about Unknown Armies now? Because um, we have one person here who really likes it, which is me. We have one person here who's never played it, which is Kevin. And I know that we have Tom who played it, played the new edition, and wasn't such a huge fan I enjoy it. I just, like, it's hard to really get into a game where one of the players is bickering with the GM in and out of character <laughs> a lot of the time. Oh, uh, so you're saying I fucked it up again? I'm not saying you fucked it up. It was just like, I was, I think it was more that campaign I was a little lukewarm on than the game itself. I think that is a, a realistic issue with Unknown Armies, is that, and this this is, get in the weeds, is that the procedural world creation system can result in a like committing everyone to a scenario that not everyone is 100% on board with or that people realize throughout the process is not as interesting to them as they thought it would be or that because one person has a stronger influence on it than others can result in somewhat lopsided gameplay. I agree, but I think that's also an issue you have in most role-playing game campaigns where the conceit is just something handed down to the party from on high from the, the game master. The people are more used to accepting that, and I feel this is like a representation of like the morality of the way people look at the world is that people feel more resentment if they are like like coerced into doing something or compelled to do something from someone they consider to be an equal or an inferior when the government puts a like a sticker saying like MA15 plus or whatever on a video saying you have to be this old to rent it, no one complains. But as soon as people willingly put a trigger warning on, everyone's like, oh my God, it's because we as a species uh, respect authority in a way. So if it's something is handed down, we just take, we just like suck on that, that juicy, juicy authority milk. But if it's any kind of like collaborative... <laughs> like exercise people have to be on the same yeah. page or else it's easy for people to react against it well yeah no i th i think unknown armies has a specific issue though where because the world gen process is a round robin that can't proceed until everyone has thrown in a, a chip onto the pile let's discuss exactly what the world gen process entails Let's let's take a step back and 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 let's get to my real question, which I shouldn't have derailed. Which is what 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 would you say to like explain why Unknown Armies is good? Because I can I can explain a lot of stuff that I like about it. But what do you think is is good about Unknown Armies? That makes it different from like Delta Green or yeah, exactly. World of That's Darkness. The big one is, oh. is 
That's what we're trying to get at. Um, it's a spin on urban fantasy that tends to be a lot more player driven as opposed to GM handing down tasks from on high, which has its own difficulties running and playing in, but it's a game much more, especially in the third edition, tooled towards a sort of sandbox style of play, which is fun. Um, and that's certainly doing more difficult to do with traditional Delta Green. Unless, and if yeah. you start like rewriting your own hack for it, then you're not really playing Delta Green anymore. So that's that's a, definitely a note in UA's court, I think. Uh, it has a really weird and fun spin on magic, which I love. Um, where basically magic is powered by either obsession, obsession with videotapes, obsession with cigarettes, obsession with sex and pornography, obsession with cameras, obsession with snakes, um, or by living a life that is fitting towards certain cosmic stereotypes of people in the collective unconscious that drive how the universe functions. And those are avatars. I don't want to get into those guys too much quite yet because explaining those guys kind of requires explaining the cosmology which well, is from a, what a like, from a creative point of view from the way that i like apprehend and ananamis has an influence on my thinking it's because the magic system as the cosmology is sort of equally based on like the idiosyncratic in idiosyncrasies of human obsession of human desires and human wants which could be fucking anything but also with equal reference to society and culture the, the overall forces that affect all of us whether we want them or not. It means that for me, when I'm thinking about unknown armies, ideas or characters, it's just never ending. I can reference, I can come up with, I can combine the unknown armies cosmology and the conceits with basically anything in a way that I can't do with a lot of other settings because the, the premise will restrict it in other ways. Um, I find this with like, as you were mentioning before, um, Nellan, with the way Delta Green, you, when you're confronted with like a, a, like a wizard, like the, the option is shoot the wizard. And this is like often my issue with Zelda and Call of Cthulhu is just like, what well, there is one option, there's only one answer really. It's, it's just, it's burn it and shoot yourself or burn it and try to forget. And that's cool and that's fun, but it's also very limited. And I like that sometimes, but when I, but unknown armies, I will think about all day. And it doesn't, I can think about, I can refer, I can be reading like any, any fucking kind of book and get an unknown army's idea from something. And that's what I love about it so much, is that because it, it connects with literally any, because it's so humanocentric, it can, can connect with pretty much any human concern and with enough time and like, but there is enough of a framework that I can fit it together with the cosmology with in a way that it's at least satisfying to myself um, and that generates all more ideas. It makes sense in setting. Yeah. The cosmology, we can go deeper into it a bit later, but the overview is that reality is a Republican democracy. The people in charge of reality, the secret masters, the secret chiefs, are archetypes, sort of in the Jungian sense, that exemplify certain stereotypes and cultural figures that exist in the collective unconscious. And those guys run the use of the rules of the universe. And so what that means is that if humans believe in something strongly enough, then it functionally becomes true, which is super freeing from a creative standpoint, especially for like an urban it's fantasy not game. not quite to the extent of something you might have with like um, 
Mage the Ascension in terms of um, because that is yeah oh, it's hard to put the difference into terms unlike something like the world of darkness where it's like all right here's all this deep lore on what every culture's vampire is like and how they fit together and just all this extremely idiosyncratic warmed over narcissism and new age 90s bullshit that you need to slot everything into or like delta green where somehow everything needs to come back to the cthulhu mythos in some way I know armies, oh, we think it happens, therefore it does. It means you can basically bring in whatever the fuck you want. Conspiracy theory, like psychic indigo children shit, uh, Thelema, other occult traditions, world mythology, all of it's fair game. Let me ask a question. This sounds neat, right? So if someone pitched that to me as a game they wanted to play and they're like, hey, can you run it? I would probably just reach for GURPS and hang on just two seconds, right? Sure. Um, right, because with GURPS, it's, it's really – everything you guys described is like weird and esoteric, and GURPS is generic enough that I can shoehorn anything in. So why – just on UA, just do it all better and give you way more interesting systems within this? Yeah, I would I would say that it's a thousand times more interesting than 3D6 roll under plus 300,000 traits from 300,000 splat books. Well, and I'd say that how UA would do something like that versus how GURPS would do something like that. And I have heard of people hacking GURPS into the UA setting, so it's not like... But people hack GURPS into fucking anything. Yeah, um, so it's, like, it's like D&D 5e. Yeah, exactly. Like any edition of D&D, really. Like, if you're thinking about GURPS and the way that GURPS can sort of do everything, I think we've explained this badly. Uh, because we're not talking about how... You can but UA's <laughs> mechanics support its theme in a very particular way that doesn't really apply to... GURPS doesn't really mechanically support theme in the yeah, way UA I'm, does. I'm curious how you'd do the stress meters in GURPS, because the stress meters are pretty much the, the foundation of the system in Unarmies, and they don't translate well to a system of intricate point-by to assemble a vast collection of Legos into a structure of your own design. I was, I was, I'm gonna I'm gonna say that um here's here's my hot take the unknown armies character build system with identities is a good version of aspects from fate I I wouldn't be surprised all of fate was basically cribbing directly from that or the other one that does the only the other system that does that sort of thing is over the edge so Ke- Kevin one reason why you would be more easily able to to run the game in the system unknown armies is that rather than to construct an npc needing to reference like okay this guy's got this guy's got a a pistol which is gurps technology but then he's also got a teleporter spell so that's either gurps magic or gurps hypertech rather than needing to like reference a pretty broad array of mechanics and special rules to construct the game object uh, there's actually a pretty straightforward, and this is this is one of my favorite parts of the game. Pretty straightforward way to mechanically represent a character's characteristics in the system unknown armies third edition, which is just something called identities. And an identity is a, a descriptive text with a percentage rating, a few examples of what that identity is good at, and then three features chosen from a relatively small list. So if you want to be uh, a con artist, rather than needing to take persuade and the the trustworthy look and face trait and bump your charisma and then maybe take a social disadvantage to offset the point cost, like uh, you know felon or whatever, you would say I'm a con artist. Of course I can convince people to trust me. 
um, identify an easy mark, and look like a normal person when the cops roll by. And then you would put in your in your three feature slots: um, subs connect, coerces self, protects protects self. Basically, what that means is that that's a character that, um, in a given situation, like if you're just walking down the street and you think you should be able to do something as a con artist, nine, nine times out of ten, you won't have to roll at all because, you know, we're all adults here. We understand that having to roll for every single thing is not fun. But if you're challenged, you can fall back on those, of course I cans. Like, yeah, I can get this person to communicate with me. And it doesn't matter, you know, if there's a specific intricate mechanical subsystem for um, for talking to someone if you have the identity. But in those cases where rubber does meet the road and you want to coerce something, someone or you want to um, defend yourself against a, a threat to one of your uh, sanity scores, then you have those features on the sheet as your last fallback. So it's a, what it does is it has both the narrative side and it has concrete mechanics that do something that's very important in an RPG, which is to inspire player confidence in a mechanic. Because one of the issues that people will have with narrative games and, and systems where you have where you talk it out with the GM is that you're not always confident in that uh, something will be handled a certain way. And so people derisively refer to that as Mother May I, and the way that Unknown Armies cuts through that is by giving you both a a like a descriptive text that in that implies a reasonable degree of competency, and for situations that the game has an explicitly defined mechanic, gives you the ability to choose which special powers you want the character to have. Yeah, no, that's actually a really good explanation, because my, my follow-up question was going to be, in a game where it's like very sandboxing, kitchen sinky in my head, you would need a ton of rules to cover every eventuality, but... Yeah. something you don't, and that's a really clever way around it. So, that's so solid, one, yeah. one of the one of the really cool things about Unknown Armies is that the players with a proper load of of skills, and this is and th- there's a little bit of system mastery. We can talk about this in a second. Players with a proper load of skills can be much more effectual than you'd think without necessarily needing like a super elaborate plan of what they're going to do next. Because if your character is a dirty cop, you can roll your dirty cop identity to go find an informant and hit him until information falls out. You don't necessarily need to do this torturous interaction of like, okay, I roll criminology to find a street corner. I'm going to, you know, Disguise right. myself to stay there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. yeah and you. and so and so if you're Kevin, I understand that you like cop games a lot. So this might not be super appealing to you because I know that you think that the process of tradecraft is itself gameplay. But for someone who said like, really struggles in this sandbox type setting to make a plan and see it through, having that mechanical backstop is great. Yeah, no, that's that's a uh, excellent answer to the question, which I was kind of trying to tee up, so you guys hit it pretty well. So, Torm, you want and I want to give like sort of a broad overview of the mechanics of the game and how they tie into those themes. Kind of jumping up, finish up what Melon was kind of starting here. Yeah, um, you you go first actually. All right, so kind of how I think of uh, UA's mechanics is there's excluding the magic system, which you don't even necessarily need to engage with. There's, I would say. I'm actually I'm actually gonna gonna just insert something in here because I don't want this to get lost and I do feel bad about um about fucking up the uh, accident like a martyr game for everyone. <laughs> um, Tom Tom, if you ever play Unknown Armies again, you should play as an adept because being an adept is everything that you like about being a wizard in Delta Green. Because when you are a wizard in Delta Green, you are everyone's favorite character and. Like you specifically, not the proverbial you, because I think most people when they play a wizard in Delta Green piss everyone off. But I think that you would really enjoy being a wizard in Unknown Armies because it is fun for a lot of the same reasons. So there's sort of five key components of the UA system. 
that which are the character obsessions, the character passions, which are fear, which are rage, fear, and noble. We'll kind of go what those mean a bit. There's the shock gauges, which are tied to attributes in third edition, which uh, we're mostly talking about third edition here. And then there's the identities that Mel went into earlier. Um, I can cover the obsessions and the passions. Tormson, you want to cover the shock gauges? You took the good one. You took the good one. You passed it. Shock gauges are fun. Basically, the key thing is that uh, obsession is your character's core motivation um generally if you're a wizard it ties into that somehow but it's complicated um and when you're making a role related to your obsession you can flip-flop it which because it's a percentile system each number has two digits right so you can flip-flop say a 91 into a 19 if it's related to your obsession and what this does it's really cool is it motivates you to interact with things that are related to your character's obsession because you know you'll be better at it and you'll be more motivated to be involved with it. And passions are sort of your character's core driving. Um, they're they're like the really deep-seated parts of themselves that kind of um, determine how they react with the world. Noble is sort of what get your character to get out of bed in the morning. Um, for example, if your character is a cop, it would be, your noble would be, could be protecting and serving. Um, your rage would, is something that will tick you off no matter what you, no matter when it comes up. So another one for cop could be, uh, people that are shitty at parallel parking. I don't know. And fear is tied into one of the shot gauges, and Torm's going to be getting that into a bit. And fear, what would be something that would a cop would be scared of here, Kevin? <laughs> I mean, I can get dark on this one, but I mean, probably like not like not going home. Yeah, you know, let's not drive us too far home. Yeah, exactly. Um, and uh, all of any role related one of your passions, you can always re-roll once, and you can flip flop them once per game. So that's one of the ways that. You ways mechanics tie into the whole you did it humanocentric cosmology humanocentric campaigns in that things your character cares about in the moment they will likely be better at those sorts of roles and more likely to succeed at them and then the system has a very granular and interesting take on sanity called the shock gauges Torm you want to tell them about that well, to look at the shock gauges and how they um, work um, are you guys familiar at all with Nemesis no. Uh, but some people the one role engine no, I'm game about the um, Dead Wilders, um version <laughs> of Delta Green that used that basically cribbed the Anonami's system. But let's uh, forget that then. It's kind of similar to adaptation in a certain way, but adaptation is way simpler. Blue or Delta Green, like the sanity system, is a binary. You're like you're sane or you're insane, and it's it's basically whatever is it's affecting you. And I know in Delta Green now. Because they've got the helplessness versus violence adapted to helplessness and all that. So they've kind of tried to make it a bit more nuanced or, or whatever they're trying to do with it. But it's a bit of a hack job. Um, it still remains like basically you're sane or you're insane. Uh, and it's just it's just a one way. It's just going insane, which is part of, part of the joy of Call of Cthulhu from the beginning. But Anonami sort of splits this into different tracks. And the tracks are um, isolation, helplessness, self, violence, and unnatural. 
And these are different ways that you can go insane. You can become resistant to certain kinds of stimuli that would drive someone else insane, depending on your background. So you can get hardened to violence if you've experienced lots of violence. Um, so some, then you experiencing another, some more violence, it's just more of the same, the same, but you might be weak on another track. So your sense of self, um, your understanding of who you are might be where you can suffer a shock when like maybe like it's like it's like um and you can think of examples of someone who is really hardened on one but not on the other so someone who is um hardened to helplessness would mean that they are used to being pushed around by the world and reality they're used to like not having much agency over their actions and then when something happens it's out of their control it's not gonna like they're not gonna suffer overly because they're just used to it because they've already got that trauma and that they've they've got this calloused like hardened like globule over that part of their brain that would like receive the cortisol or release the cortisol so they're fine with it but something else like seeing a ghost or getting shot at might freak them the fuck out when someone else who was like used to violence but also used to being in control of themselves and the world around them they might be weak they might suffer a shock if something happens that they can't control so it's that kind of thing. So there's different ways that you can be hardened to different kinds of uh, sanity shock, and there's different ways that you can go mad. Um, is that a good? Would you say that's a, a good way to describe it, Frank? Uh, do you want to talk about how those tie into the tributes in third edition? The what? The the core stats. Oh, now I forget. The, the, the... No, listen, listen. Right, listen. Yeah. We, we, we say gauges and attributes. He that's says gauges and attributes. tributes. Tribute. I said attributes. Attributes. Oh god, I've run this game wrong the whole fucking time. No, it's this is this is not the greatest game in the world. It's just a tribute. <laughs> That's good. Um the Beautiful. basically with the third edition, um Greg Stolzis decided to plagiarize his own um noir game and combine the shock gorges with the um with uh, what are called upbeat and downbeat abilities, so that as you get hardened to one of, on one of the gorges, like one of your base abilities gets worse and the other one gets better. That's basically all you need to know about that, I, in my opinion. So, like an example would be um, for violence, the less uh, hardened you are to violence, the better your base connectability is, and the more hardened you are the better your base struggle And a lot of people is. who prefer the second edition, which didn't have that rule, they still had the shock gorges, but not with the skill or the abilities attached. Um, they, there's a few, quite a few people that don't like that system. And it, it's, it's the way third edition works. It's not necessarily a core. I would, I, I would say it's an optional way to play to unknown armies because the second edition, first and second edition exists. They don't have that. Um, so it, it's just the way third edition works. I like the broad strokes personally, but there's something left to be desired in the execution, which is honestly kind of a running theme with third edition, I think. There's a lot of ideas I really like, and it kind of doesn't stick to landings all the time, but we we don't need to get into that now. Um, one thing I do want to point out, though, that differentiates this from Delta Green is in Delta Green, there's three types of sand damage. One of which is unnatural, and the game specifically says you cannot become adapted to unnatural. In unknown armies, you can become hardened to unnatural. You can get used to this shit. And that in and of itself vastly changes 
how players interact with this stuff because it's not inherently corrosive the same way it is in Delta Green. Yeah, that's a pretty big conceit uh, to change. That definitely needs a tonal shift, yeah. I think the biggest tonal shifter is the coercion system. The coercion system is the is the idea that you can, rather than attacking someone's HP, you can attack one of their sanity meters by uh, bullying them based on an approach that you hope will be persuasive. So you can threaten them with violence. You can threat. You can appeal to their sense of self. You can uh, make them feel helpless. You can do all kinds of things. And the idea is that. You have a rock-solid mechanical subsystem. Rock-solid is a strong word. I think there's problems with the coercion system. But the idea is that by giving the players a mechanical system to simulate browbeating someone into doing something, you establish that it is possible to get what you want without just deleting the NPCs from existence. Because the, the reason I think why so many of these games end in violence is not necessarily that violence is insufficiently punished, I think that you can punish violence quite harshly and the players will still do a lot of it. I think the base issue is that most games, the alternatives are like, okay, roll persuade and then hope that the other guy doesn't go back on his word because that's what everyone's worried about. And whereas if you just kill him, then problem out of the way. And Unknown Armies flips that on his head by giving you a system that actually inspires confidence as a player. I would say it doesn't have to be bullying. Like coercion can be bullying, but it can be just manipulation. It can mean different things because one example, a solid example I can give is one of the characters I'm playing in a campaign, um, his name is Gilgamesh Pahlavi, um, but one of his identities is he's a bad influence. And that comes with the, I chose the features, coerces self and coerces helplessness. And how I do that in game is the coerce self is if I want someone to do something, like like Gilgamesh is going to be like, come on, man, you know, like, you know, you're the kind of, you're not the kind, you're not the kind of kind of, like, like, if I want someone to like attack someone or do something stupid, Gilgamesh is going to be like, you know, you're not the kind of guy that like takes that lying down, are you? Come on, now you're stronger than that. You have to do something about it. While coerce's helplessness would be more along the lines of like, dude, like, can't let this happen. Like, if you let this happen, then this, like, you're going to be fucked, man. You're going to be fucked if you let this happen. So that is not really bullying, it's manipulating. And there's, so there's different ways coercion can work, but it's basically leaning on something that the NPC is weak on in order to get them to do what you want, as opposed to just like putting a gun in their face and saying, do this, or other, or just rolling uh, persuade. Yeah, without going the other direction of becoming turning role-playing interactions into sort of a dialogue mini-game, right? It's a very solid bit of mechanical scaffolding for sorts of situations you see in role-playing games a lot, but... It's not going to turn every conversation into, you know, that one fucking mini game of oblivion. It's a combat system, no. Yeah, exactly. And that's the thing, like, it, with this sort of, like, with coercion and lot, lots of aspects, the best aspects of the game, what's, what's difficult is that it's really easy for me to, like, identify things which I don't like about the game and explain why I don't like them. It's kind of difficult for me to, like, explain why the good things are good. They just are. And it's been a constant problem in my life because this game, like, I picked up second edition, like, 20 years ago with my mother's money, having graduated from Alternative Dark Matter um, through Delta to Green Countdown, and then finding this book. And I bought, I looked at it, and I looked at the back, and I'm like, this loop's good. And I took it home, and I read it, and I was like, this is great. I love this game. But I've never been able to explain it to my satisfaction. But it didn't take me long to read it and go, oh, this is amazing. I love this a lot. So it's like selling it is difficult because I don't think it can be sold 
or bought. You have to just either accept. I don't know. It's hard. Just I don't know. Melon has done a pretty good job of explaining why stuff like coercion and identities are good, and I'd say the core thing with how Unanars is designed is it's designed in a very open way where players can make a lot of different character concepts, but those different character concepts aren't really super... They don't have a bunch of their own subsystems involved necessarily. They're they feel distinct oh, as characters. Oh, they absolutely do. Well, except they for magic. Do have except their for own magic. Subsystems. Except so for got, magic. Not even just magic, but magic, unique supernatural identities, yeah, unique fair. mundane identities. Right, fair. The book. So, and and this this is a feature that I actually do like is that um, once you become more familiar with this game, it's actually very easy to create certain types of content for it. Like you, there's there's. Make, making a whole wizard school is, is kind of bullshit, and making a whole um, avatar school is kind of bullshit, but just doing one unique supernatural ability, like if you want your guy to, um, just to use some examples from our uh, the one that we're working on over on the Special Orders um, Secret Lab, uh, stuff like be able to see ghosts, or be able to tell if someone has committed a murder, or um, have your have your own internal monologue visibly externalized as seeing tutelary spirits telling you to do things to have, to, to, to be bicameralized or to be a telekinetic because so, i'm like, bicameral of course i can that's good well do 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 you do the unique supernaturals get of course i can no, they do not usually no they don't no, I, I would allow I'm, that see this 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 is the issue is that is that unknown armies does have a bit of an issue with this tension between, because I explained this as a positive earlier, but especially in the in the in the world gen phase, there is a bit of a tension between the narrative side and then immediately asking you to to make these mechanical distinctions, like like how um, with a with a mundane identity, it's built a certain way, but supernatural identities are built a different way because they don't get, of course, I cans. But um, the I'm pretty sure that 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 um, and, and and just micro level shit like an adept has to be an obsession, but an avatar doesn't, and an, and a unique supernatural doesn't, but it can be, and that determines what types of dice manipulation you're entitled to. Because one thing we haven't talked about is that unknown armies is a percentile system, so that usually means that you just fuck up all the time. But because of the way that the avatars and the and the the game's dice manip- avatars, the uh, obsessions and the dice manipulation system works, you can actually like do stuff. And, real, and succeed at least some of the time, which is great. The way I describe it is it's a game that recu- that allows you to make a lot of very different sorts of character concepts without introducing... And these character concepts feel distinct without introducing a bunch of complexity. The game's core is pretty rock solid. There is a lot of GM adjudication, but the GM adjudication is in the right places, I'd say. It is hard, I think, especially with the character and world generation portion to square the circle between what that is and what the game ends up being. And even though I really, really enjoy the corkboarding process, it is basically a half-baked story game grafted onto a traditional role-playing game. And I have put thoughts into improving this, and I've got to, I have a project to work well, on. Well, first you want to explain what corkboarding is. Yeah, so corkboarding is the game's killer app, and also the reason why no one ever fucking disagree, plays it. Disagree with a hot. Well, disagree with. I've done corkboarding on itself by itself. It's a grand old time. Yeah, I wouldn't blame corkboarding for people not playing the game. The problem of everyone 
like for years, like when second edition was the like the edition people talked about or thought about, it the biggest problem with unknown armies was people who read unknown armies were like, this is really cool, but I don't know what to do with it. That problem is never going away. Uh, that is the problem. That's a built-in feature of unknown armies that it, 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 it people don't know what to do with it. <laughs> it ties in with the openness, but the corkboarding process introduced in third edition is a way to kind of try to mitigate it at least. Essentially, before you even start playing your unknown armies campaign, the GM and all of the players create a conspiracy corkboard together. And that conspiracy corkboard sort of maps the broad strokes of the setting that the players are getting into. Because UA is a setting that can do a lot of shit, you kind of want to narrow down exactly what's happening from the get-go to get players invested. And one way to do that is to allow players to make those creative decisions themselves. So, you know, you make a cork, you make a conspiracy board where you put your characters up, you put elements that you're including in, you know, the small town where all this crazy occult shit is happening, and you draw connections between them that might be your relationships with each other or this organization or this floating rock that speaks in bobcat noises, but you can still understand for some reason. Um, and, from there, everyone's a bit more on the same page to a certain degree. There's a bit of a problem where people don't really know what's allowed in the setting and what isn't. And I guess the way I try to square the circle on that is just be pretty much every, anything goes, except me as the GM can veto things if it doesn't really work for kind of what sort of campaign I want to run. Well, that's kind of the GM's role in, in any game. You know, yeah, but it's it kind of sets some guardrails. It, it it gives players more of a hand in what the campaign is going to be explicitly focusing on, and what sort of people and places are in the environment around them that they may know. Um, for example, um, the first UA game I ran um, for a campaign. I wanted to run in my hometown. In the mountains near my town, there's like this old Disney vault that is... It's not like a vault. It's like a converted train tunnel, which then became a um, fallout shelter, which then was bought out to, by Disney, and they keep a bunch of their old shit in there. And we're like, oh, all the other people in my game were kind of interested in that. Like, okay, we want our campaign to be about getting into this vault. And then we built all this vaguely Disney-related conspiracy shit around there, like half-rat half-man cartoon people nearby. Um, there was a cult of, like, furries that were led by a plastic surgeon nearby that are also trying to get it into the Disney vault. And that's just sort of the shit that comes up in the game. It's just like, it's... You, you get that creative ball rolling, and then it's kind of a writer's that's room the thing, sort of like, process. With the writer's room process of corkboarding, it is really fun... If you like, if you're the type of person with that sort of thing, that sort of creative collaboration is fun. And the issues of like, yes, it is a round robin where if there's one player that like is holding the rest of the group up, that it's held up. Um, and that's just the way it kind of is. And there could be ways to fix that problem, but it's kind of the nature of the beast. There is a, there is a need at the beginning to be bold with creative choices. And if you just, and like not and not worry too much. Just be like, ah, oh, okay, I'll put this on the board and see where it goes. Because I found with cork boards, <clears throat> excuse me, and um, 
like as a GM apprehending corkboards, it's interesting what in the corkboard, like on the corkboard, would seem like um, just something that someone's thrown up just randomly because they couldn't think of anything better. How it can end up being really actually the best thing on the corkboard when I wasn't expecting that to be the best thing because it will link to other ideas. Because everything on the corkboard, people put up there like this is a location I want to include, this is a GMC I want to include, and like this is a connection I want to make between them. You're making this conspiracy board of associations and then the GM has to take it away and be like, what the fuck does this mean? How do I craft a campaign out of this? And it's it's painful sometimes and it's it's fraught with dangers and I've I've many a time I've I've gone too far with my corkboard and I've been like I I've been unhappy with what have I've how I've interpreted it. But it is still a glorious fun process. Um if it works well. And it often does. And I'm 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 sorry Melon. I'm sorry Melon. Because I love you Melon. But Every time I've done corkboarding as a player, I've just found it grueling. But as a GM, yeah, no, no. I absolutely. I have run it. corkboarding for people online. I've run it um, in person. I've run it for people who haven't played Unknown Armies before. I've run it for people who haven't played role-playing games before. I've run it for people who don't speak English as their first language. No one has ever been as much of an impediment to the corkboarding as you have been to the corkboarding. You have given me ulcers, Ellen. Um. I think what does help with corkboarding is having, if you can, a decent character concept. But that can also be hard because you haven't even necessarily decided on what the core goal of the campaign even is yet. But I do still love it because I, it reinforces the game's themes in two very particular ways. One is it tells you straight away this is a game about conspiratorial thinking because this is a cosmology about conspiratorial thinking. And two, it drives home the focus on player and character agency in this world by giving you agency to a certain degree over the world before you've even started playing in it. But that it, the problem with it is it gives you agency in a way that often is you're not sure how, what, how much agency, what that agency even means, especially if you haven't played it before. And it can be... Like it's difficult. It's the same because it is a story game grafted onto a digital role playing game, and it comes with the same sort of hurdles that some kind of story games have. Because the difficulties I found I've had before with corkboarding are similar to difficulties that um, people have with games like Microscope and other like collaborative world building type games of that nature, um, and they do require something um, that is different that people expect from normal traditional role-playing games and it, it it's that is I, I like it but i understand why people would be like what the fuck what i didn't expect this this is not what i expected and the problem with the way it ended up being in third edition by just having it grafted on is it does have that it's it can be jarring for people um yeah it can be very difficult for people who aren't used to being in that creative role when playing a role-playing game i have had more challenges corkboarding for people very used to traditional role-playing games than i have for corkboarding with people who have barely yes, any role-playing yes, game experience at all i agree i'll give that entirely uh because it is a kind of um sort of string of strings of association combining things together um mutual like a collaborative pattern recognition like you're making a crazy conspiracy board like you're a bunch of people on 4chan like seeing like the face of jesus in trump's hair or whatever 
It's interesting because um, Delta Green is a game that largely moved away from, like, conspiracy theories being true because, first of all, because the developers got older and, like, when you get older, you your perspective switches from smash the system to, oh, people like me can hold oh, positions yeah. of power. John Tynes, the deep you know, state, other good guys. The government's right. good. Yeah, God. Yeah. The reason why this is funny is, like, extremely specific. Yeah, we don't, we don't need we to watched. explain it. We don't explain okay, it. Okay, but, 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 um, but, un, but, uh, Partially because of that, but also because um, conspiracy theories have like become among the social services services social circles that the devs inhabit become like faux pas. They become associated with like icky and conservative. Whereas Unknown Armies is a game that is supposed to be about which it comes it comes from the same era as original Delta Green, but it is supposed to be at least on the surface about maintaining that um, that flavor of connecting things that are bullshit in order to create an interesting and unexpected narrative but i'm actually going to take it in a different direction and suggest that um we do something on this show sometimes called a brent trent which is where we got tired of seeing low effort posts on various delta green sub forums where people just post a um a news story and be like there's artifacts in there and kevin kevin was the leader of in 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 fighting against this yeah, with it's, this it's cons- the lowest form of human scum <laughs> <laughs> kevin kevin, kevin Kevin led the Kevin led the charge against this movement. Worse than with, ISIS. Um, the con- yes. Oh, ISIS has values. ISIS has artifacts. Say you will about Wahhabi Islam. At least it's an ethos. Yeah. So, so the issue, um, the issue is that like these are kind of like the the feeling was that these were kind of low effort posts, and so we thought let's do a segment where you actually try to think a little bit harder about why like the mysterious house had like 3,000 teeth in the walls. Sure. And that was a segment that we did for a while that I honestly think we should bring back just because I think that scenario building is fun. Uh, that Called Brent Trent on the Daily Hour or whatever. Uh, the, or the Minute Hour. I forget what it was called. Oh, Kevin, the, the, this newspaper is the Daily Hour. Okay. But um, those types of stories are the same ones that you would use to make an Unknown Army's corkboard. Except that um, typically the corkboard uses images more than it uses descriptive text. Use whatever you want, really, as long as it can fit. It's the same type of concept, and I'm I'm gonna I'm gonna draft I'm gonna draft Tom again as a tiebreaker because um, Tormson has alleged that I'm the problem I'm the problem child when it comes to corkboarding. And Tom, what how did you feel about our four hour odyssey of? of I'm not saying I'm innocent in anything. Let me just put that out there. I've done nothing wrong. I mean, wrong. I just, I learn best Never. by doing the thing. I learn best by, like, just playing and going forward and just seeing how all the levers, which direction there can be pulled back and forth. So, like, any kind of stop, start, and arguing over, like, optimization is just really draining on me. Yeah, so, so Tom... Tormson actually is he's he's done a bunch of different experiments on how to make corkboarding more um, engaging and he had one which I didn't particularly like but which you might enjoy that's more about filling in all of your characters meters during play rather than just putting things on a board and trying to figure out how many notches you have in unnatural maybe I was going to say that might that once maybe that would work like in the moment once you're really thinking about like 
how instead of an abstract sense when it's more visceral how is this going to affect my character i can see that yeah being a little more because i was trying to do that an idea okay i was was trying to do um i was trying to figure out because i have some ideas of different ways to make corkboard different because the way it's designed in the book is very much like very particular and i think there's ways to to do it differently and i was trying to go for something more diegetic and i have different ideas on that but for one example of something is like coming up with your fear passion like you're all like in a hallway and you see a shadow at the end and it looks like something that's the, the scariest thing you've ever seen and so what is that and it's silly it's very dumb but it's also like you have to think of like what would that shadow be what is the scariest thing so i was trying to bring it make every part i was looking over the corkboarding process which if you read it, it's very mechanical, even though in play it's, it seems very loose. Uh, and I was like, how can I make each section of this be something that's going on in the setting so that the character can slowly be built in a way that's sort of tangible in a way? Something I've been rolling around in my head, but I haven't put to paper yet, which is a running theme in my work, um, is the idea of making corkboarding something that's done more passively over a greater period of time. As it exists currently, corkboarding is something that is done basically all at once. You all sit down together for a four-hour period and go through the steps to do it. I was more thinking like, okay, there's no reason that for most of the time that this needs to be a round robin and you need to go step by step through each of these people. Um, well, they need to go, okay, Mel, it's your turn to go. Now it's your turn, Tom. Um, so instead, maybe like each of those steps is done asynchronously is over the course of a day. And then at the next day... You switch to the next steps, and that gives you more time for this stuff to kind of simmer in your head. It means you aren't as dependent on other people getting their stuff on there for you to put your Basically, stuff on there. Basically, it's turning cockboarding into diplomacy. Yes, functionally. And, I mean, most conspiracy corkboards are not constructed in a day. You know, sometimes, sometimes there are manias like that, but... I don't know. I feel that we are talking a lot about like our what, various projects that are working on fixing things we don't like about other navies. Well, why else did we come on here other than to shill for our shit? So, so to 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 take it back to the discussion, I think that unknown armies is uh, has had an issue at least with the new edition of the game, that there weren't a lot... It has the same issue as Eclipse Phase, which is that it's kind of a a difficult setting for a lot of people to grasp, and there weren't that many published modules for it. But I think that after listening to your published module discussion on the show, on your show, talking with the... um, talking with the authors of some of the modules that you talked about, and also Tom's comment just now about preferring to jump right in with a game and then figure out the intricate building mechanics later. I wonder if I might agree with you guys that approaching Unknown Armies with a pre-generated module first and pre-generated characters, now that there are some good modules out there, might be the way to go. Sure, I can see that working. It depends on how much you enjoy corkboarding in of itself and find that kind of intrinsically rewarding and a fun introduction but, to a but game. But I found, I know, I know Tormson's going to stay, it's still my fault, but um, I found corkboarding for Zero Yen to be much more fun than corkboarding for uh, like a martyr because I had a little cool. bit better of a grasp I, I can, of what I, I was do doing. I still, I still took way too fucking long and, and dragged out the process for everyone else, but um, 
I at least I ended up with a result I was much happier. I think the with. key thing, and I, I've run into this issue a bit, and I just kind of try to drill it into the players' heads as much as I can, especially like the trad gamers. It, when people are like, "Okay, what sort of stuff exists in the setting? What can I include?" or not include and I all I can say is tell them like include whatever the fuck you want if I don't want it in I'll just veto it just the world is your oyster what sort of thing do you think would be fun for you to interact with in a pretend game put that on there cause the cosmo the universe is deep and vast and contains multitudes and I don't want to be too, like, I don't want to be too overly critical of you Milan, because I am aware that as a proselytizer of this mystery cult even though I say I shouldn't, it's not a proselytizing religion. Yes, like if I, you, yes, you were a problem child, the redheaded stepson. But that that the responsibility is on me as the guy saying this is a great game, you should play it. This is really good. I need to be able to convince people of that, um, and that's something that's on me to deal with. So I can't complain about oh this guy, this this player didn't get it, didn't get it, man. Because if you can't explain something well you don't really understand it and anonamis is hard to explain because it's hard to understand but it's easy to feel in my heart it's a vibe so it's say, a vibe so what you're telling me is, is no one understands anonamis Under, no one knows yes kevin this is gonna be like osr where we just spend an hour explaining it to you you're gonna be but like no one ah, even so knows what the anonamis are what does it mean what is the title of the game yeah that's why they're fucking unknown it's me i am the anonamis so I, I'm gonna I'm gonna ask and, and and if you guys don't wanna talk about this, we can just cut this part of the audio. But I actually had um someone on Night of the Opera yesterday who had just read my like single post about my character from the Zero Yen game, uh Yoshida the Cleaner, ask if there was anywhere he could read about um special orders. So is that something that you wanna talk about? The ongoing prod, the ongoing product, or would you rather keep your mouth shut until that's later? more torn? That's up to torn. I'm kind of on the fringe. You're fuck, Mel. You're to, I think we should, like you're more creatively involved in that than I am. Yeah. Oh, it's talking about special orders. Um, this is a good question because I should have some like document. I should start pushing it. Um, All right. Do you, do would you like would you like me to give a pitch for it if you don't have one ready? Okay. So. Uh, Unknown Armies had what the most probably most popular splat book for the second edition of the game was a book called Break Today that was about a secret burger conspiracy at McDonald's called Mac Attacks. Mac Attacks wanted to make the planet better, make the planet more accepting of magic so that you didn't have this these constant riots and mini civil wars between the mundane conspiracies and the occult conspiracies. They wanted to, they wanted things to not be so fucked up. And so they decided that they were going to have an elaborate scheme and burger conspiracy involving putting magical special charges in food and then handing the food out. And the way they decided to do that was through McDonald's because McDonald's was a restaurant that at the time any fuck up could work at. And so it was not so difficult for wizards who by and large are not terribly functional people to get jobs there and then secretly, you know, influence the, uh, the like ley lines and so on by just handing out the the special cheeseburgers. There's a whole like elaborate body of lore behind this, but essentially they were they were like one of the fan favorite factions because people liked the idea of a burger conspiracy. They thought it they it, it's a very succinct combination of what Unknown Armies is about with the the magical wizard shit, but also like the shitty minimum wage job. And then the lore of what happened after that is that they were largely destroyed in a brutal wizarding war with like a dozen other factions that cleared the decks of all the old conspiracies from the original game. But one of the 
books for the new edition of the game gives a very embryonic descriptive text of all the splinter groups that came out of this. And Tormson read that, and he was like, yeah, these suck, I'm going to make them better. And he fucking did make them better. He made them a lot hey, better. I'm glad to hear that. And I still, it's still somewhat a work in progress. Um, I did have a problem with the, the splinter groups as I represented it in the book because they were super phoned in and super obvious. They were ideas that I could have had like 20 years ago if I thought about what if there was what if there were back attacks in other franchises? Hmm. Um, and basically, I used what was presented as springboards to like try to come up with better explanations for what was in the book. But I'll use them as to try to drill down on like what could be what what are the ideological divisions within Mac attacks that could lead to a whole new organization? Uh, because I love schismatic religious groups and ideological warfare. I love this sort of shit, so it was the sort of thing I was interested in. Can 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 you can you phrase it in a can you phrase your your burger conspiracies in a form that is like like a fast food item is like packaged and easy to consume and exciting. The what each for each of the each of the, the factions? Yeah, just All real right, quick um, down so the line. Mac attacks is Scottish right. Uh, Scottish right is the successor to Mac attacks. It's as um, Max just as uh, Max just explained the. Putting the burger charges into putting your magic charges into fast food in order to launch a magical revolution, in order to make the world a better place, or at least make it a more magical place. While the court of the Burger King, a uh, Burger Queen, I'm sorry, is um, basically that. But what if we did it centralized? What if we did it in a more rationalized corporate neoliberal way? And also, we all had apps um, and. I think you're not you're not I really know. selling me the sizzle here because you can you 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 can you can describe like how they're different from the original, but but I want a descriptive text like um, Court of the Burger Queen. It is burger monarchism. It is we are going to have a magical revolution that is under the centralized control of a single CEO, uh, Colonel Secret Coterie. It is one part um, like right wing militia group obsessed with controlling. Uh, you know, hoarding weapons and bombs and so on, and one part a Marxist-Leninist cadre dedicated to placing the means of magical production in the hands of the workers. Uh, Melazinian Mysteries. Uh, essentially, a group of people who decided that if the Illuminati didn't exist, they would need to invent it, and they would invent it through distributing special drinks at Starbucks. And you've got your... Zero Yen. Zero Yen. You got the fan favorite, Zero Yen. Zero Yen, a, a bunch of people who hand out uh, magically charged bento on the Shinkansen, the bullet trains that go around uh, Japan. They seem like a harmless and kind-hearted group of people up until you upset one of them, and then they drop an unhappy meal on you, and you jump in front of a train. If you saw Demolition Man and thought, man, I wish there were a source RPG source book for the fast food wars, well... We got you covered. Yeah, or the or the or the dread the dread storyline where he gets captured in in Burger Country under Burger Law, and like dragged through the streets by the McDonald's partisans. See, this was much. This was a much. Yes, I I agree. That was a much better explanation than I could have done. I'm not good at marketing my own stuff. All right, <laughs> I need to write the blurb, Melon. I think that we can come up with something like Country. Yeah. That really, I I use the term sells a sizzle deliberately. Did did um. I, I think I kind of derailed the conversation here, though. Uh, did it, did anyone have any last licks they wanted to get in? I have many licks. 
But, um, things that we haven't covered yet. Do we want to go into the magic system a bit? Because we kept on putting that off. I think, I think we're, 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 we're heading up to the time. Right. Going into the magic system, I don't know. We can talk about, I want to talk about Adept Schools on our goddamn podcast, Frank. Well, yeah, but we're trying to, well, yeah, okay. Listen, there you go. When we say we'll talk about this stuff later, we mean follow this hyperlink that will be included where we will talk about Adept Schools and avatars. All right, well, this has been an extremely productive debriefing. I want to thank you guys for not going anywhere while we incarcerated you in this cargo container and interrogated you about the unknown armies and how many there were and whether we actually ever really okay, were just, capable just of knowing let me them. Know which one of you pissed in my mouth? Was it you? Was it you, Frank? Was it you? Again. There's only one way to find out. <laughs> no, no. All right, uh, you can find us when we are let, when we are let out of detainment. At uh, 33.3 FM on Twitter and SoundCloud. Uh, Tormson and I have our stuff on DriveThruRPG. Tormson's is under Frank Tormson. Mine is just under what, Frank. What, what, what? Uh, I have one thing up there. What, it's why called Private Frank Tormson. But, wait. There's no Frank. I legitimately have. Who's Frank Tormson? There's no Frank Tormson. I've, for the longest time, thought your first so name was actually Frank. What, what's your stuff under Tormson? We haven't the ritual of union yet, Frank. You keep putting it off. You know I'll win. No, Frank Tormson is just a thing he's selling your shit under. Well, yeah, like, what are you selling your shit under on Drive RPG? David Tormson. David Tormson. God, same number of letters. There's an A in there. That's my excuse. Um, yeah, under David Tormson, mine stuff is just under Frank. Uh, I have one thing up there, Praviturgy. But, yeah, our podcast. Check it out. Can you let us go, please?